Welcome to our eight-week series on the Apostles' Creed, what it says and ways it means. My name is Brent Strawn. I teach at Duke University where my primary appointment is in the Divinity School where I teach Old Testament. I suppose that means technically that things like Jesus and the New Testament and the Apostles and early church history and all that is technically above my pay grade. But Daniel asked, and so I said, yes. I'm looking forward to spending these eight sessions together thinking about the Apostles' Creed. Now, you may have seen the video teaser that Daniel and I did where we talked about what the Apostles' Creed isn't. In fact, there's a lot of things that the Apostles' Creed isn't. In fact, most obviously everything that the Apostles' Creed isn't isn't the Apostles' Creed. Things like pieces of gum, small rocks, uh, carpet, window treatments. These were some of the things we listed. We also went on to talk about how the Apostles' Creed is not Assassin's Creed, nor is it the character Creed from The Office, uh, and neither is it that power rock band named Creed from the late 90s. But I forgot, unfortunately, that the Apostles' Creed is also not Apollo Creed. I don't know how that one even slipped my mind. I mean, Michael B. Jordan, right? <laughs> Sexiest man alive, according to People magazine. But what is the Apostles' Creed? If we're clear now on what it isn't, what, what is the Apostles' Creed? Let's start with the word creed for a minute. A creed is a concise, formal, authorized statement of important points of Christian doctrine. That, in a nutshell, is what a creed is. And the word creed comes to us in English from the Latin word credo, which means, I believe, that's in fact the first word of the creed in its original Latin. As for the Apostles' Creed proper, it comes to us in its current form probably from somewhere in southwestern France around the 7th century, but it goes back much earlier than that to what people call the Old Roman Creed, which dates to at least the 4th century, but probably much, much earlier, given the use of creedal statements like what we have in the Apostles' Creed in various contexts like baptism or the training of new Christians in catechesis. It was also recited in the church early and often in liturgical settings like we do here at Christ Central when we read it as part of the Eucharistic liturgy. And it was also recited personally on a devotional level. The great early church writer St. Augustine or St. Augustine, it depends on if you're from Florida, that great church father, St. Augustine or St. Augustine, said to us, be not irked to recite your creed. Be not irked to recite your creed. And he was talking about something like the Apostles' Creed, if not the Apostles' Creed proper, and he wanted us to recite it at least twice a day so that it was with us in our minds in the beginning of the day and also at the end of the day. So the Apostles' Creed was used since early church times as a source for formation and also information, as a kind of summary of Christian doctrine and also as a, a kind of sacrament. It was also used in debate at times of theological crisis, for discussion and for clarity on what the Christian faithful most poignantly and most importantly believed. It was often used for uh, new people in the faith, new initiates, those training to become Christians, studying to become Christians, the early catechumens learning their Christian catechesis, and this extended even to those who were illiterate. Can't read? 
not a problem. You can still memorize the Apostles' Creed, this kind of nice summary of Christian faith. Or today, if we feel a little bit illiterate when it comes to the warp and woof of the Bible or all of Christian theology, no worries. We can memorize the Apostles' Creed. We can think about it, memorize it, recite it as a summation of Christian thought. So, in this sense, you know, the Apostles' Creed is quite important. In fact, today, it's a major point of Christian unity, despite all sorts of Christian division and schism. It's sort of one thing that pretty much everybody in the Christian communion can agree with. And in that sense, the Apostles' Creed is kind of like Apollo Creed, if you think about it. You know, totally buff, jacked, you know, superior, as it were, to all other competitors. Now, the importance of the Apostles' Creed, both early and now, leads to two important creedal questions that I'd like us to continue to ask ourselves throughout our eight weeks talking about the Creed. The first one is this. Do you or can you believe in the Apostles' Creed? Being a Christian for thousands of years has meant believing in the Creed or something very much like it. So that's the first question. Do you believe this? Can you believe this? The second important creedal question is, how do you believe this? Being a Christian has, for thousands of years, meant practicing what this creed says. I think there's two mottos that might also help us as we think about the creed over the next several weeks together. Both of them are from Nicholas Lash and his work on the Apostles' Creed. He has a number of mottos in the book uh, that he wrote on the creed, but uh, here's two that really are important to me and I think helpful. The first is short words, endless learning. The creed is quite short. It's not very long. It's only 77 words in Latin. Who counted? I did. 77 words, it's not long, it's really not hard to memorize, I mean, at least in English, harder in Latin, I'm sure, but not that hard to memorize. You can teach it to your children. I taught it to my kids when they were quite young. Short words, but endless learning. It will take a lifetime, Lash says, to find out what the creed really means and live it out. That's the first motto, short words, endless learning. The second motto is somewhat similar. Lash says, what the Scriptures say at length, the Creed says briefly. What the Scriptures say at length, the Creed says briefly. That means that the Creed is, at best, a summary, a condensation of what Scripture teaches us in more extensive, robust, and lengthy dialogue, story, narrative, poem, you name it. The Scripture says a lot of things. The creed says less. It is a reduction, a focusing, a concentration of key elements. What the scriptures say at length, the creed says briefly. That means that there's a lot to say about the creed and still yet more when we think about what the creed says in light of scripture. And to the first motto, there's a lot to do with the creed, short words, endless learning. So there's more to say about the creed and more to do with the creed than we can do in eight weeks together, especially with only 15-minute sessions. So let's get to it. Let's begin, then, with some observations on the Apostles' Creed. 
You might be familiar with uh, the British comedy troupe Monty Python. They, they had a shtick once where a professor came out to explain his current research theory. This was kind of funny to me since I'm a professor. There's a big buildup with this professor about the theory, this grandiose theory that was about to be revealed. And turns out in the end, the theory was just this. Dinosaurs are skinny at the front, they get fat in the middle, and they get skinny at the end. It's simple, but rather brilliant when you think about it. It's true in my experience to most of the dinosaurs I've encountered. Uh, in any event, the creed is kind of like that, isn't it? Skinny at the front gets kind of fat in the middle and skinny at the end. Skinny at the front with God the Father and then sort of chunky in the middle with Jesus and then skinny again at the end with the Holy Spirit and the other things mentioned with the Holy Spirit at the end. In fact, these three parts of the creed God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have sometimes been separated out as if they're three articles of the creed, three different types of belief. Maybe, but instead I wonder if the repetitions that we can see in the creed, and there's a number of these, things like the repetition of God the Father Almighty, uh, repetition of the Holy Spirit, repetition of things like life and death and, and, and so on and so forth. These repetitions actually serve to show that the creed has a great bit of unity and cohesion. And so instead of thinking about three different beliefs, we should instead think about three different ways of believing in the one triune God. In fact, that's the name of Nicholas Lash's book on the creed, Believing Three Ways in One God. Well, if we turn from general observations about the creed to its specific content proper, we could begin with the framework, the beginning and the end of the creed. To begin at the beginning, we note, of course, that the creed begins with I. I believe. This I is important. It shows personal engagement with the creed. But typically, the creed is said within liturgical communal context, in worship, as we do here at Christ Central. And so this I is said in concert with a we. We and me together are at work in the creed, therefore, and both are very important. I, this personal engagement, but also we who say the I together, this corporate communal uh, engagement with the creed, saying it and affirming it as one body. Well, it's not just I, is it? It's I believe or I believe in. This is the Latin word credo, which I said earlier, which means I believe. It's important to note that this word in Latin is credo, not cogito. You might remember Descartes, the philosopher, his famous saying was cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. But the creed doesn't have cogito, not I think, but credo, I believe in. This, in other words, is not a matter of simple intellectual assent, a kind of knowledge of something like the existence of God. This is something far more important than that. In fact, you might remember the letter of James in this particular verse there in that epistle, which says, even the demons believe God exists and shudder. It's not a matter of thinking God exists, intellectually assenting to the existence of a supernatural power. This is I believe in, credo. It's far more important than that. In fact, according to many people, this is performative speech. This is speech that does something, that affects a change or affects something happening when we say it. 
There's a number of examples of this in everyday speech. Uh, you can think about uh, sports. An umpire, when the umpire says strike, it's a strike. Or makes another call on the field, football, basketball, it, 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 that's what it is, right? Their speech has made the thing happen. Or something that you and I probably do on a regular basis, think about it. Yacht christening. Who hasn't done this? Where you christen a yacht and say, I name you the Queen Mary. I mean, most of us have had that experience. That too is performative speech. Actually, the most frequently encountered and perhaps most important form of performative speech is what we say in weddings. When we say, I do, in a wedding, it just got done. This is the kind of speech people think is at work in credo, I believe. And that's risky. I believe in God is therefore equivalent to I do in a wedding ceremony. It's a kind of pledge of allegiance, the ultimate pledge of allegiance, as it were, a pledge of commitment and fidelity. And so the little silly teaser that Daniel and I did turns out to be quite right at this point. The Apostles' Creed is not everything that is not the Apostles' Creed. Just like when we marry a spouse, we are not marrying everyone that's not our spouse. In the creed, we pledge ourselves to God. Believing in God according to the creed is not believing in everything that is not God. Again, that can be risky, it can be fraught, it can be costly, and it is oftentimes not easy. That's the beginning of the creed. If we jump to the end, we can see that the creed ends with this word, amen. That's the last word of the creed. It's a word that we frequently say in prayer and that we often say in response to other people's prayer. Amen, too, is a kind of performative speech word. It's a nice counterpart in that regard to I believe in, which begins the creed. The word amen in this sense really means something like this. Yes, that is what I believe. That is what I hope for. That's what I hope to happen. And I'm going to live in such a way that reflects that and achieves that. Let it be so. That's what amen means. More colloquially, I suppose it could mean something like, let's go. Either way, amen is a super ethically charged word. It may, in the end, be the most serious word that we ever utter. So to conclude this first session, we could say that the creed is important for a whole host of reasons. Among others, and perhaps the most important, we might say that in the Apostles' Creed, we are marrying God, pledging ourselves to God saying I do to God and no others. That's what I believe in means. Another way to view this or to put a fine point on it is to say that we probably are always believing in something. Could be ourselves, could be someone else, could be our jobs, whatever. But what the creed asks us in a very poignant way is, what are we going to believe in? What are we going to pledge ourselves to, ultimately? 
The creed and Christian theology, of which it's a summation, says that the answer to that question is God and God alone. But that's just to invite more questions, right? It's a, it's a great answer, but it invites further thought. What God? What kind of God? And how would we believe in this God? Those are very important questions that we'll begin to take up next time. Thanks for tuning in. See you soon.